0: If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you'll never miss a chance to find a new business to support and learn what
1: makes a city like this one work as well as it does. So join us as we explore Happy
0: Grateful Blessed with Tammy Tran.
1: Hi, everybody. I am so excited to have my guest here today, Frugal Dougal. Thank you for being here. Great to be with
0: you. Thanks for the invite.
1: John, when I first heard the term Frugal Dougal, I... I didn't know what to think. I, I laughed and thought, oh, that's really funny. Oh, and he happens to be the state auditor. Okay, I get it. Well, where did that name come from?
0: Well, so the funny thing is I grew up, and it was just in my family my whole life. I'm the oldest of 11 kids. I tell folks frugal is all I ever knew growing up. Um turns out uh, I I had a a friend who said you know, you should use it on your campaign for auditor. And I did, you know, what's called A-B testing. I'd close some of the county convention speeches with John Dougal and they'd promptly forget my name. I'd close the other half with Frugal Dougal and almost everybody remembered my name. And then it became, you know, my campaign name as I went around the state. And uh, then my uncle called me and said, do you know the history of that? And I said, no, and he goes, what's wonderful to see this negative turned into a positive. Your maternal grandmother You know your mom is the daughter of a well-to-do attorney and your dad is the son of a poor truck mechanic (laughs) and your maternal grandmother did not appreciate their dating relationship and so she coined this term to kind of push him away it clearly didn't work and so my uncle just loved how this negative in the family had been turned into a positive all i all i knew is i'd just been called that my whole life
1: that is awesome i didn't i i've never heard that story and i'm glad that you shared that that's fantastic. You so you grew up one, the oldest of of ten kids. Oldest of eleven. Of eleven. Okay, how you did you did learn about frugality and being conservative and pinching pennies? Oh, absolutely. I can imagine.
0: Absolutely. I can remember being five years old, picking, you know, raspberries and blackberries and cleaning them, putting them on a paper plate and you know, putting him in a baggie with a twist tie because we didn't have Ziploc back then, and then taking the wagon around to sell to the neighbors and stuff. Really? And you were expected to just work. I had a paper out and got a second paper out and was in the process of getting a third paper out when I got hired to work at a nursery, you know, greenhouse and stuff like that. And then became a bookkeeper and, you know, you were just expected to, you know work and provide for yourself
1: and and just be independent and yeah, learn self-reliance yeah. at a really young age
0: oh yeah yeah i mean there was a time where my dad came to me i was about 16 and he said you know we'll provide christmas and your birthday but pretty much anything else you want that's that's your responsibility
1: oh, that's that's an awesome way to grow up actually the world that we live in now is very different oh yeah and we're seeing the the the, the um the, the outcome, entitlement the entitlement know, of exactly I want exactly
0: what my parents have mm-hmm. and i'm in college and they've been working for it for thirty or forty years.
1: Exactly. When we first bought our first house, I remember our TV was sitting on a kitchen chair, uh-huh. and my mom came over, and I was crying, and she said, "What's wrong? You just bought a house." And I said, "Mom, we don't have an entertainment center. We we look at my TV; it's sitting on a couch or a chair." And she said, "Tammy, I have worked twenty five years with your father to to earn the ability to provide for our family an entertainment center. Why do you think that you will just have it immediately? You know, and and." It, was a reality check for me.
0: I laugh at that because the yeah. first two chairs that we had were actually these folding lawn chairs that were on the side of the road next to a trash can <laughs> you to found. get tossed and we grabbed those because we didn't have any furniture.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. In the old days when people actually had to really work hard for things, um, we need to bring that back, yeah. that work ethic. Absolutely. John, I am excited to talk to you for so many reasons. The most important reason being that you are running for Congress. Yes. So I want to talk about your childhood and, and kind of your your experiences. Now, you have this really great reputation of being super conservative. Mm -hmm. And when we mention in any room state auditor, I think people shudder and think, oh, no, we've got to make sure that we are towing the line to being transparent, which is fantastic.
0: Well, you know, I I joke with folks uh, that government officials pray for me on a daily basis. And the prayer goes something like this. May God bless and keep the auditor. Far away from us
1: (laughs) exactly absolutely and that's fantastic you've been a great watchdog for for public money and for, for for spending tell tell us a little bit about you you were one of 11 kids you grew up learning to work where did you grow up
0: so i was born in southern california in hollywood um my parents moved uh to portland oregon when i was about six or nine months old so i really grew up in the portland beaverton area so your nike tennis shoes come from beaverton um and a uh, very liberal place um, and, and then moved came down to BYU when I graduated from high school um, graduated in electrical engineering and with that I went off to Silicon Valley so it was off in the San Francisco Bay Area for about five years and then got recruited back to Utah by by folks I went to school with uh, friends that I worked with in California they had come back to Utah and they recruited me back here and I've been here since 96
1: so you're from California
0: Well, I call it more Oregon, Oregon, but but born in California and stuff like that. But yeah, I've seen the politics of California, Oregon. And one of the funny things is I served a decade in the House of Representatives, representing Northeast Utah County, Alpine Highland, American Fork, Lehigh, and Draper areas. And uh, people used to joke because I was typically top three most conservative in the House. And they're like, wait wait a second, given where you grew up, what happened? And I like to tell them I saw everything that didn't work.
1: Good. And that's what you're you're wanting to change and that you have changed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I believe a lot in uh in uh personal responsibility and hard work and entrepreneurship and, and looking for win wins, letting people work among themselves to figure out what's better rather than the heavy-handed government.
1: So coming from a mechanical engineering background or electrical engineering background. Yeah, let's get the right yeah, one. Yeah, electrical engineering, totally different um, background and coming into the state legislature, what initially inspired you to to run for a seat there? And, and why were you interested in it?
0: So um, I had a cousin who was in the legislature and he would talk about this thing at family reunions and I had no idea what he was talking about. So I called him up uh, February of, uh, 2000 and said, Hey, is this legislative thing going on? And he said, yeah. I said, can I come spend the day with you? I have no clue what you're talking about and stuff. And I'm kind of curious that way. And so I went and spent the day. It was the most foreign experience that I ever had. And then uh, a few years later, I ended up uh, getting elected. You know, I was kind of, you know, you know, outspoken in my community. And I guess one thing led to another and, and and folks elected me and I jumped in a race. There were um, four of us. Uh, uh, There were other folks that were front runners You know, there was a guy. He was a lobbyist, uh, politically connected. Grew up in the area. Had all the church credentials, the community credentials, everything (laughs) else like that. Everything that counts. He was the guy that was supposed to win it. Uh, There was a um, uh, former city councilwoman who was a realtor. You know, her name was everywhere in the community. A retired Air Force colonel, and then little me. I think I was thirty-five at the time, and and I just basically outworked everybody and pitched my vision of of what I thought was necessary and what what to do and campaigned on the importance of transportation education and the economy and one thing led to another I got elected and then folks said well it's just a fluke he won't get reelected and and then you did I, I served for 10 years so five terms
1: That's fantastic and you attribute that to knocking on doors knocking on doors getting, out, outdoors, there, getting, to getting out there in the
0: community uh, you know people would joke that I was in the community more than people that actually lived in their communities so <laughs> that's and that's one of the key that's things is just being accessible visible working with folks and helping them you know know how to engage
1: when you were first elected, did you go through the caucus system, the convention? How did that work?
0: Yes. So um, in that I race. I know you're a huge advocate. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I love I love the caucus convention system. We can talk about that in a minute. But so in this uh, state house race, um, there are four of us in the race. And, and I tried to be folks first place choice. But if I couldn't, I asked to be their second place choice. And so in the first round of voting, I got 41% of the vote. To the front runner, got 39%, and the difference went to the other two. They dropped off. The next round, I got 59% of the vote to his 41. So I was almost everybody's second place choice. I missed taking in convention by one vote. So we launched into a primary.
1: Okay. Then
0: we're about three weeks into the primary when the guy who was supposed to be the front runner called me up and said, Congratulations, you, you lost by one vote in convention. I'm out, you win. Really? I, I had outworked him. In terms of the primary and stuff like that. And so, and, and one of the key things that I like about the caucus convention system is that somebody who doesn't have much money or name recognition can go out there, pitch their message, work hard, explain what they're gonna do, how they're gonna do it. They get questioned by the delegates and they make their case mm-hmm. um, and they have a chance. Coming from California, basically it was fame and wealth seemed to be who won the elections not somebody who was a hardworking candidate that I thought would do a good job. And so that's one of the things I liked about the Utah process.
1: Well, okay, speaking to that, so if people don't know, the uh, convention caucus system is ranked choice, where you can vote for your first person and then your second person, your third and your fourth, right? Well, is it, is, it, down, is th- it
0: like that in- Kind of, sort of, but most people don't call it ranked choice because <laughs> ranked choice is here's one ballot, mark everybody first, second, third, fourth. So what this is, is usually we vote around. Right. And, and, if then, you don't get and it, then we see who falls off, and then we vote another round. Sometimes people give speeches on that second round, sometimes they don't. But then we vote it, and we vote Okay, it. So, so not we vote technically it in multiple ranked rounds.
1: choice, but yes. it's, it's like ranked choice. It's
0: kind of like ranked choice because usually they're winnowing it down to either one or two people coming out of convention going off to the primary.
1: Right, and, or and, the general and do you like that system?
0: I, I love that system. Okay. and stuff when, when the system works, because when the system is focused on who are the one or two best candidates, I think it's a really good system and when you have lots of participation at the caucus meetings if you have a caucus meeting that only has like three or four people then it's really easy to steer it i had caucus meetings with you know 200 250 300 people showing up um and so when you have lots of participation in the caucus meeting choosing the delegates and then the convention system is picking the one or two strongest candidates it works well Unfortunately, what happens is sometimes people don't show up at caucus meeting, it gets stacked by a certain faction. Mm -hmm. And with the primary system, now those that are on the primary sometimes scuttle what goes on in convention because they don't want strong challengers coming out. So they want weaker challengers coming out. And so they undercut the convention. And so that's one of the weaknesses about where we're at today.
1: So in order to mitigate that or to sort of um, preempt that, there's a signature route.
0: Well, there is a signature route, and that signature route undercuts convention, unfortunately. And so some even even I, this cycle, said, given I, I I said, "Hey, if everybody wants to do caucus convention, I'm good to go with it. But if there's some that are collecting signatures, then I have to have that as an option, unfortunately, because that is that is how it works. That is how it works right, today. Okay. I'd love for us to go back to the old system, but that is the system we have. Right. And I have fought to try and preserve the old system. Mm-hmm. but uh,
1: I know you've been a strong voice for that and a great advocate for that, which is great because. You know that's what our country was built upon neighborhood meetings and the, public the engagement br- public I mean, engagement the, relationship you, you know at the city
0: level and getting people there and, mm-hmm. and you look at some of the cities on the east coast that have their town meetings where you know the whole town is showing up a couple times a year to really give their input and, and i'm not sure the dynamics in kaysville but i know sometimes when i went to my city meetings when i was not in office they they look at me and i'm the only guy in the audience mm-hmm. and, and I, they're like Do you have an issue do you want to say something i'm like no i'm just just here listening just here watching and you know they're not used to anybody showing up
1: it's true and and the engagement is really important and that's what we're really trying to spread i remember my parents going to neighborhood meetings caucus meetings and wondering as a child what that was and then all of a sudden the signs disappeared you know there used to be signs all over the neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and so i do believe we should get back to that while you were a member of the house so you do have you had the most conservative legislator a reputation and you were well known for that. I, I know that you worked on uh, the Huntsman tax reform.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Will you talk a little bit about that? Because I think it really speaks to who you are. And-
0: yeah. So, so one of the key things um, I care a lot about long term. Some, some folks care about the next election. I like to look at long term structural issues to say, how do we make a better economy? How do we make a better society? And on tax policy, we were not competitive. We had a very high tax rate in the region. Only Idaho was higher than us. And even Olin Walker at the time recognized that we were not competitive when we tried to, you know, recruit businesses to Utah or have those businesses expand. And so jumped into that just uh, really deep on tax policy. Um, They like to joke that I forced the economists to run through 3000 different iterations because we were trying to balance, how do we maximize the tax cuts within the constraints that we have, minimize tax increases on anybody as we've got a much more competitive system. And we ended up going from essentially a a top rate of 7% getting down to a single rate of 5%. So, uh, you know, a flatter tax, a fairer tax, much more competitive in the region. And one of the other dynamics that was uh, critical from my perspective is when we passed that in the house, the vote was 75-0. Really? Everybody was present and everybody voted yes. And I tell folks that it's really important to reach across the aisle to work with folks because on tax policy, the last thing you want is tax policy get whipsawed with every election. True. And, and, and too often people forget that. Well, I got this short-term win, but you don't have long-term staying power. And so you want to engage people. You want to bring them together. You want to help them understand why this is in their best interest or the public's best interest to get that support. And that takes a lot of work.
1: Oh, absolutely, the collaboration required. Yeah, Hours and hours of conversations. And
0: And then I think it was good policy and and, and much better. And I think uh, various factors when we had an economic downturn, I think that was one of the many factors that helped us be much better positioned.
1: What do you think in terms of current tax policy being discussed at the Capitol?
0: Well, the things I've heard, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, they were pushing um, some changes. And at the time I was pointing out the problems, they had misdiagnosed the issues and other things like that. And one of the key things was they were saying the sales tax was dying. And as I looked at the data, I didn't think the sales tax was dying. In fact, I thought given that it started collecting online sales tax, it might be rebounding, but I definitely didn't think it was dying. And I pointed out the problem is the gas tax is the one that's dying. You get more fuel efficient vehicles, Mm -hmm. you get alternative fuel vehicles, you know, when you can bypass the taxing mechanism, but we still expect the infrastructure, the gas tax was dying because we use sales tax to prop up transportation funding. That's why they were seeing issues in the sales tax but they were misdiagnosing the problem. And, and I think, uh, you know, David Stringfellow, my chief economist, and myself were about the only ones Th- in terms of the that. political class expressing concerns about where the legislature was running. And they, they ignored us. And then they had, if you will, an end-of-leash experience mm-hmm. where they passed something and quickly there was a backlash from the public going, we don't like that, and, and, and stuff like that. And they had to undo it. I, and I there were ways that. to have avoided that but they did not want to really listen and learn from past experiences. So
1: they wanted to look short-term, quick wins mm-hmm. type legislation, which we know doesn't work.
0: Nope, nope. Um, as we're talking about... And, and when you hear somebody say crisis, 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 mm-hmm. oftentimes in government, I mean, it is not a crisis. This thing will not die in a year or two. Okay. You know, you, you may be on a trajectory that's going to be a problem, but it's not like a crisis today.
1: But, but when someone says crisis, crisis... Is that a good red flag to say, okay, we do need to look at it, you know, plan for the future, or is that just more of a political?
0: Sometimes it's a political stunt and sometimes it's meaningful, but you need to step back and go, okay, are they overplaying it? What is the issue? And I I need to understand it. And sometimes too often in the public, there's so many things going on. It's hard to see past the, the the good intentions or the hysteria that's out there to say, okay, what is really going on? And it takes some time to go understand those issues. It takes time to have those discussions and, and, too often, when you look at the news media, they give you a thirty-second soundbite. They don't really say, "Okay, let's talk for an hour about tax policy and the pros and cons of various scenarios."
1: Well, absolutely, and I appreciate you saying that because it's true. We respond to what we read in a tagline or something. Mm-hmm. Um, running that, running little, for-
0: that little text that went out to all the constituents. <laughs> Can you believe the city council just did yes, X, Y, Z?
1: Exactly, which brings us to another to me to another question for you. So. Um, Yes, when when you get that tagline and, and people react very emotionally to those types of things, um, as a new state auditor without an accounting experience, you know, background per se, how did you how did you step in that role and just really embrace it? I mean, who did you trust? How did you get your information?
0: Um, you've, so, you've been so successful. That's yeah. why I'm asking. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, so let me give just a little backstory, so folks understand. I challenged a 17 year incumbent. Mm-hmm. My background is is engineering and business uh, not accounting not a CPA. a first non CPA state auditor since the mid 70s. Um and and one of the key differences in the race was he was pitching that he was the chief accountant for the state and I was pitching the vision that the auditor is the chief um is the constitutional watchdog for the state. And 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 I think folks respected my vision. And so it was, okay, here's the direction we're trying to go. Uh, I interviewed everybody that was in the office, determined who I was going to reappoint, who I wasn't going to reappoint. I didn't delegate that off to some committee to do. I personally interviewed everybody to see who shared the vision, who had the skill set, other things like that. And a funny story is I'd been in office maybe three weeks and one of the staff came to me and said, by the way, do you know so-and-so is a Democrat? (laughs) And and this person knew that I was a pretty staunch, hardcore Republican. And I said, does that person have the skill set to do the job? Yeah. Are they going to do the job? Yeah. And okay, that's all I asked. That's, that's all I that's asked. That's what matters. That's what matters. Uh, this is not some political litmus test. This is who has the skills to get the technical job done. And my job was to set a vision of where we're trying to go rally the, the folks with the right skill sets, hire the right talent to augment so we could get the vision done. Because there's part of it financial audit, part of its performance audit. Clearly, now we've also got a strong piece, which is data analytics, as well as some IT audit aspects. But it's how do I get the right skill set so that state auditor really provides the watchdog capability to help the public hold their governments accountable. And when we talk about that, you know, there's the state clearly, and you know, there's 16 public colleges, and universities, and tech colleges. But when you think about local government, there's over a 1000 of those cities and counties and school right. districts and charter schools and transit districts and water districts and cemetery districts and all sorts of little things all, that people don't even imagine right and we're and all we're, taxing entities and, and we are trying to help them avoid having problems now now some are more open to getting the help and some run into issues and we have to crack down because they violated the law or had somebody steal a money or something like that but our objective is how do we help these governmental entities um avoid these problems how do we help them be accountable to the public and comply with the law.
1: Well and it's it's a it's a fantastic and, and in the role um that you've performed in the last, for the last, how long have you been there? I've been 11 12, years. as I'm in
0: my 12th year right now.
1: Yeah, 12 years. It's been foundational and, and great, great work. So we appreciate that. Um, I have a question for you. In terms of budgeting and looking at numbers, Kaysville City, like every city across I just want you know, to is then... not one of
0: those frequent flyers with lots of <laughs> problems. We, we in Thank the past, you. had some issues where <laughs> yes. we had to come in and help correct some activities, but yeah.
1: Yes. in mean, prior years, for sure, but we are in a good place now. We're in a good place. Um, but we are talking about the budget, and I know that you had some experiences and opportunities opportunities to look at specifically health and human services, mm-hmm. which is a very um, sensitive sort of area. You know, we all want to be compassionate. We all want to be Christian. We want to love people. How how did you go about doing that? As we're talking about the budget here in Kaysville, you know, having discussions, hey, where can we cut back? Where can we save? How did you actually go into an organization like that and recommend cuts?
0: So this is when I was in the legislature in 2009. So we're in the, uh, the midst of an economic downturn. The the greatest uh, recession since the Great Depression and uh, and I'm the House Chair for the Health and Human Services Budget Committee and our job is to cut. And I had a, my Senate a colleague was a very kind-hearted uh, man who just struggled with cutting. And I said, we don't have the money, we have to cut. Now I want us to cut as as wisely as we can, but we have to cut. And one of the key things is setting the expectations of where we're at and the budget constraints we have. So my colleagues and the public understood where we were at. We made sure to give time to the public to speak. And this is one of the things that I did. Um, uh, he struggled to cut people off. And so I, I tried to be respectful, but I wanted everybody to have a chance to speak. So we might have a hundred people in the public or 120 people show up. Everybody who wanted to speak had an opportunity. That's Now fantastic. that meant maybe they only had two or three minutes to speak, True. but boom. But an opportunity. And I was just, diligent about marching through and making sure we were respectful of time, everybody had a chance to share their perspective, and we were there until we got everybody having their chance to share their perspective. And then while we did a lot of the legwork of putting the framework of the budget in there, we made sure that we left, it wasn't like we were just doing the whole budget and ramming it down the throat of the committee. We left enough flexibility so committee members could then weigh in with their priorities and could adapt and adjust the framework that we put in place and and stuff like that. But it was really trying to be clear about the vision of what we had to do, the mission that we had to do in terms of how do we meet the needs of this very sensitive population Mm -hmm. at the same time balancing the budget because in an economic downturn, Families, the taxpayers are struggling to make ends meet. And you can't just go out there and say, hey, we're going to raise taxes and everything else like that. So you're being clear about the vision. You're being clear about the objectives. You're collaborating with folks. You're having lots of back and forth and discussion, and you're being respectful of the public and allowing them to engage in the process such that they understand it's difficult, but they feel like they're being heard. And they, and and, and not just, okay, I had two minutes to share my perspective, but they're actually seeing how you're analyzing what they said and incorporating it into the decision-making process.
1: Absolutely, and that's what we hear from our from our constituents as well. Is that, okay, we understand we're not going to get every win, but at least you're considering what we've actually said mm-hmm. and what we've brought to the table. In terms of, um, I, you know, I've heard budgets done different ways where um, a city council says, okay, parks, this is your budget. Or the park says, hey, city council, this is our budget. And we need a little bit extra money in addition. So, is there is there a preferred way? Do you think it's better for uh, an an administration to say, okay, you have ten dollars, or the organization to say, hey, we have ten, but now we need fifteen? I mean, to set the budget, who should be in charge of setting that amount? Should it be based on what's been spent before? Because there's that user loose sort of so, mentality.
0: Yeah. I, I, one, I'm a fan of zero based budgeting. Okay. Which is. Which is basically you start, you start at zero and build, and build it up. up. You don't just okay. say, okay, here's what you had last year. Now I'll give you 2% above that and uh-huh. you can just keep going. It's start at, start zero, at scratch and, build. and stuff. And the other key thing from my perspective is sometimes when you silo it, you build in these inefficiencies. Okay. And, and I believe that you really should prioritize what are your top priorities. You fund those first, you work your way down the list. And when you're out of money, you you're draw a cut money. line and okay. you're done. It's kind of like family budget. What is the purpose of me saying I'm going to spend on a vacation and, and a fancy car and this and that when I can't pay the mortgage? Right. I got to put the mortgage right up there at you know near the top or at the top in my family budget and work my way down. And okay, if that means I can't go to Disneyland four times this year, well, then I draw the cut line and, and, I, and I can't afford that. And it's the exact same thing when it comes to government. You got to look and say, what are your priorities? Fund the most important things first and then have a cut line at anything that falls below. So what that means is, Maybe your parks department isn't as high a priority as maybe an activity in your roads department this year. And you have to have that flexibility to move the money around to make sure you're going down your priorities, but you have to have that discussion about priorities for sure, because I see the dynamic in government where, um, some folks will play a stunt where they will cut the Mm -hmm. most critical item and fund less critical items to agitate the public and stir them up. So years ago, um, I was on a public education or education committee and we we're talking public ed funding. And they were saying they need more money for uh, uh what was it? I think it was math and reading. And I said, Okay, so tell me about tell me about football. Football fully funded? Well, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And so we went down a, a list of different things. And I'm like, so you're mismanaging your budget. If you're telling me math and reading are your top priorities and And you're asking for more money there, you should fund those things first and then you should come back here and ask for more money for football or whatever else it might be, and then let's have that discussion. But you intentionally cut the most important things, so you clamor here and play a game.
1: Well, that's so true. We see that happen at every level. Oh, yes. Let's talk about your-
0: Because too often the public buys into it. Oh, heaven forbid. uh, Right. Students are going to be learning in the street. Criminals are going to be running free in the street, all sorts of things like this, rather than
1: Focusing on where is the money going, exactly. follow the money. Yep. Let's talk about your congressional race. would love to talk about your campaign because this budget discussion completely will be part of this new discussion. So I, tell us, tell us a fiscal why, train wreck. It, it is, it is a train wreck. And I think there, you know, it's, it's easy to say no to everything, it is. But what I hope is for someone to come in and say, okay, no, and here's a solution, here's why here's how we can fix it. Tell us what you're running for. Tell us where you, you know, your your so, area.
0: So, so I'm running in 3rd Congressional District. So this is southeastern Utah. Okay. So you can think East Bench, Salt Lake County, east side of uh, Utah County, all the way out to Daggett, UNA, and all the way down to San Juan County. So kind big of southeastern big area state, lots of public lands and big part of the urban area, the Wasatch Front. And I'm running on a issue of fiscal responsibility. D.C. is a disaster. If you look at the fiscal distress that's there that people don't want to talk about, right. that's the unique skill set I bring. Um, I, I find myself in the awkward position. I spent two decades saying, I don't want to waste my time in D.C., <laughs> and, and now Here I'm now I'm running. And and this partly comes back, I haven't been planning this for a long time. In fact, it started in November. I was visiting with a friend who was a, a liberal in New York, a constitutional scholar, and we were talking about my concerns about the overreach of the federal government, the abuse of the Commerce Clause, things like that. And he said you know supreme court really isn't going to fix many of these issues and no matter how good you guys do in utah you're not going to fix these issues you have to be willing to go to congress if you really care about fixing some of these issues some of these issues can only be fixed in congress and so you have to be willing to consider going there if you care about these issues so that caused me to start to say okay should i be considering this and and if you look you know one of the key things we talk about budget uh, too often, you know, I, I get most people are not numbers people. Numbers scare them, um, and it seems like in Congress we do this flyover of, okay, we're going to just uh, cut everything five percent, or we're going to, you know, cut something one percent. Or in their mind, a cut is I'm going to grow at five percent. And then we now mean, I'm, I'm only going to grow at four percent. Now that's a cut of one percent, which to me is still growth. But I think the other thing is you talk trillions of dollars, and people don't understand trillions of dollars. We've added more than a trillion dollars of debt just since the football season started. I mean, we have doubled the national debt just since Obama was president, wow. but you have to distill it down into simple numbers so people understand Imagine if you will, that you're taking in $100,000 in salary in a given year, but you spend 130,000. Mm-hmm. That's effectively what the federal government is doing. Right. How long can you survive, yeah. okay? Not very long, <laughs> Not very long. you're gonna be borrowing and borrowing. Now imagine, uh, let's let's pick your mortgage. Mortgage, typically the single biggest item that most people have in their family budget. Now imagine you're paying more for your minimum credit card payment than your mortgage. The minimum credit card that's payment. That's incredible. That, that's essentially where we're at. Within the next year or two, we're probably going to spend more to service the debt than we spend on national defense. And I, and I was talking with somebody and they were, they were concerned about the future of our democracy, and I, I will contend it's a republic, not a democracy, but I'll use her term. And I said, if you really care about the future of our democracy, look at the fiscal issues. Mm-hmm. Because in a decade when, uh, we can't pay the benefits that are promised to retirees. When we're trying to balance the budget on the backs of the military, we have so eroded our industrial base that if we ever got into a hot war, we could not. We, we're we struggling to supply munitions to Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Just imagine if we were unfortunately in a hot war, we couldn't do that. And then if there's a push to raise taxes and all of a sudden people are losing jobs, you talk to me in a decade what that democracy looks like. And that's where we're at. We are in a serious, serious problem when it comes to the fiscal matters. And and f- we need to have folks that are willing to go back there and do a deep dive on where the money's really going and how it's being spent and try and help folks understand on both sides of the aisle, the concerns and distill it down into things that they understand rather than these big, you know,
1: trillions, big numbers that the they don't Trillions of dollars that just seem so, so out there. Exactly. It, it's not even real. Yeah. To most people. And,
0: and uh, we'll just keep doing this, we'll just keep doing this, we'll just keep doing this.
1: Yeah, just keep spinning it. So when you go to Congress, your plan is to cut, to cut spending, cut funding. What is your plan?
0: Yeah, so, so part of the dynamic is, is you got to cut spending. I mean, if you look right now in the tax burden that we have, you got to look to cut. Mm-hmm. The other thing you got to look to do is you got to look to grow the economy. And we've done so much in terms of pushing companies offshore and punishing business development in, in our country. And, and, and there's no way you can tax your way out of this and there's no way you can cut your way out of this. You have to grow the economy as part of this. And we have to be, from my perspective, I don't want us to be bribing companies to come back and I don't want us to be building a wall to keep companies from leaving. I want us to be the preferred place for business to be. I want them to be here because of our workforce, our tax policy, our infrastructure everything else like that. I want them, supply chain, whatever it might be, I want them to choose to be in America because then that will help our kids, our families, our economy, our, our fiscal issues in DC. You know, right. a rising tide lifts all boats and that's that's where we have to get to. And, and let's talk something about energy policy. Let's, we're, that's
1: a great topic. We're,
0: we're living in a world in which we seem to have this fantasy land that people are gonna use less energy going forward and we're gonna just conserve and conserve and conserve. The simple fact is, our energy usage is a sign of our economic strength, and we will use more and more and more. Now, we need to figure out how to be wiser in, environmentally about how we protect our water and our air and other things like that at the same time. But we shouldn't live in a fantasy land that somehow people are going to use less energy. We're going to use more, and we need to be, basically be one of these, you know, all of the above energy solutions, and we need to be an energy provider to the world. And so let's just accept reality and let's embrace that reality going forward rather than creating all sorts of barriers that, that make it more difficult to provide for our families and more difficult to, to start and run our businesses.
1: You know, I, I agree with you completely. I had an opportunity this last week to go and speak in behalf of cities that have power companies. Um, you know, there's a bill that, that wants to decommission, um, w- well, w- wants to, to, re- to, to, to keep coal mines, that are, you know, that, that cities have invested in. And and I completely agree with not wanting to be energy dependent upon anyone else. We have so many resources here in Utah. I think we need to definitely plan for the future and prepare you for that. You do not want to be dependent on we, we uh, <laughs> Right, or Bountiful, or any of those wonderful cities. But what we want to make sure is that we have independence here. We are self-governing, self-reliant. At the same time, you know, Kaysville City has invested a lot in power infrastructure. And so I, I think... Finding that balance is, is the key. And, and it's a really good discussion, and we need to keep having it because there are so many nuances about it. You know, we want to be affordable. We want to be sustainable. We want to be a re- reliable as a power company for Caysville City, at the same time respecting the fact that we have to be energy independent here mm-hmm. in Utah.
0: Well, I, I have a good friend who's in California. This is a couple of years ago. Silicon Valley. She was going off to a meeting, and uh, they told everybody to bring flashlights because they weren't sure if the power was going to stay on. Really? In Silicon Valley. It's like, seriously, California, you have so screwed this thing up.
1: Oh, that's so many examples of what has really gone wrong. And so you're able to bring that experience firsthand.
0: Yeah, yeah. But you got to be able to dive deep on these issues. And you have to, I I get that in politics, there's there's kind of this desire to throw bombs. Mm -hmm. And if you turn on the uh, TV, there's lots of bomb throwing back and forth. Right. The simple fact is you need to be uh, persistent in your beliefs and persuasive in your approach. And, and try and, and win people over and help them understand you, you have to understand where they're coming from because they're trying to represent their constituency, and you have to help explain your concerns and you have to help them see kind of why your perspective is better for their constituents, so they can start to see that and and that you know is is something deeper and and takes much more effort than just lobbying bombs and and scoring you know you know, Facebook wins as well.
1: Right. Well, exactly. And so as you represent um, us, I'm not in your district, but as you re- represent us- You are us always walking the but you have to- <laughs> I have a lot of friends and family no. in Utah County. I grew up down there. So um, I, I will spread the word. But as you're representing your district and our state in Congress, do you have any areas that you're really going to focus on? I mean, financial transparency, budget, et cetera, but is there anything in addition to that that you're
0: sort of, ooh, this well, is well, going to be my thing? So so fiscal issues are really critical right. if you look at border security. I consider that part of national defense and so I the whole too. national defense dynamic, but the border security about the importance of securing the border and 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 dealing with this whole notion, which is, okay, catch and release, we're going to have people that are four years before they get adjudicated, we should be doing that within days to weeks, not years. And if we can expedite, you know, get administrative law judges a sufficient number and a priority to get them down there and just process folks quickly, change change our asylum laws, other things like that. When you talk national defense, clearly I have concerns about our eroded industrial base. Um, I think, unfortunately, too often, we focus on the last war that we fought, not what might be coming down the road. Um, And one of the other key things in this district is public lands two-thirds of our state is controlled by the federal government. I tell folks, whoever controls the land controls the economy. And unfortunately, in the state of Utah, too often, that is the federal government. And when you look at some of the dynamics down, I'll pick San Juan County, you know, they've got, you know, so many resources and and minerals that are critical, you know, rare earth elements and so forth, that right now we're, we're getting from China. And if we have a, a, you know, electronics and stuff like that, a supply chain, global supply chain, and our military is dependent on, on these kind of devices, and we're, we're trying to get it from China. Right. That doesn't seem to be smart. And not, yet not they're, they're in here. our backyard. And for some silly reason, we don't want to harvest it from our backyard. We can harvest them and be sensitive to the environment and be smart about this. And we need to do all sorts of things like that. And so, so it's kind of a, you know, multifaceted, you know, interest what, there.
1: What can you do as a, as a congressman, a congressperson, to change that so that we have access to our own minerals and our own resources?
0: Well, I think one of the dynamics is helping folks understand the, the risks to national security when it comes to that. I think it's helping folks understand concerns when it comes to supply chain. I think it's helping folks understand the magnitude of how big Utah is. I mean, I was talking with uh, a few years ago, some state auditors from Connecticut, and we can fit 22 Connecticut's in Utah. They have no understanding of the magnitude of our state. And then they came out here and we're like, wow, this is really big. And so we have to help them understand what they're used to think about in their dynamic, showing them what it really means out here and, and helping them have that understanding of how we can, we can address various concerns that they have, but why this is a wiser policy.
1: As you're out talking to people, having town meetings and, le- and learning from your constituents, what are their number one concerns?
0: Uh, when I talk with folks, um, uh, clearly, border security okay. is, is critical. Uh, the next thing is, is really providing, uh, you know, it's the economy. It's, it's inflation. It's, it's how do I provide for my family? You know, folks are struggling to put food on the table, a roof over their head, you know, making sure... I mean, they're hearing Joe Biden say, oh, you know, the economy is great, and yet right, they're sitting here they not feeling afford- com- comfortable about it. Mm-hmm. And So all those kind of, you know, fiscal related issues, they don't quite think about national debt. But that does ripple in, and that's part of what's driving inflation that they're experiencing. And then I would say probably the third thing is just what I call family values. They look and they want their kids and grandkids to have as good or better life than they had, mm-hmm. and they're concerned about their future. And they see a, a federal government that is not focused on creating that better future, but more focused on, you know, being woke and- Being dependent to, and- Being dependent and, right. and things like that. And, and I want us to have in America, I, I, you know, I grew up when Reagan was you know, uh, president right. and yeah, his, his positive view and vision, this shining city on a hill. I want America to go back to being that shining city on a hill, not just for our own country, but for the world. Um, rather than kind of some people seeing us as an afterthought and we're a uh, declining power and, and, and stuff like that. I want, I want my grandkid to have a much better future than I had, but I don't think we're on that path right now. I do too. And
1: I hope that, I hope that you can change it. And I know that people say, well, one person can't make a difference, but you can. You can make y- a difference. Y- our try. coalition can make a difference. And, and everybody that we have representing along with you, if you stand together. Do you have great relationships with our current elected federal legislators
0: yeah i think i've got good relationships with them i mean they're all on speed dial and stuff like that good, and, okay. and, and, and stuff and so so i would look with to to them for you know some collaboration and, and then the other dynamic is reaching out to others you got to start to build coalitions uh, uh, you know within your caucus but also across the aisle right. and so so you know i had you know going back when i was in the house my last year i had a legislator approach me and said how do you get along so well with the democrats when they fight you on everything you do And I shared with them, I said, well, if I just attribute that they're evil people, that's not good for me and not good for them. I have to assume that they're doing the best job they can. There's some information that I have that they haven't yet learned. So it's incumbent on me to work extra to help them understand. So, and to do that, I need to know where they're coming from. I need to know what motivates them so I can find some common ground to then help them understand my perspective. And I just have to work extra hard at doing that.
1: I really love that, the the collaboration and the focus on listening. Because you're right, nobody will care what we say until we actually listen to what they say. Yeah. And then we're able to communicate better. I appreciate you being here. This has been really interesting. In closing, how can people reach you? How can they support you? What can they do to help you in your campaign?
0: So, so right now, you know, my campaign website is votefrugal.com. Uh, you know, this is, this is one of those things, is uh, reach out, let me know that you're interested. Reach out and talk with your friends and neighbors about their concerns about uh, the future of America. I'd love feedback and, 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 and stories from folks about how we can do a better job and, and what they think Congress should be doing better. But uh, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, thanks. To all my podcast listeners, thank you for listening. I really appreciate your feedback and your support. Please leave comments and please leave suggestions for future guests. And most importantly, subscribe.
0: Thank you.